So I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5. We're looking at the one verse. We will be dealing with a number of passages today from a variety of places. And so if you um, will keep what scriptures you have in front of you handy, we'll be moving from place to place as well. Another place to put your finger in that we will turn to soon is John chapter 1. You'll notice that the title of the message is The Christmas Mind. I debated whether or not you would be over christmas by the time you heard the message. And um, the fact that you have two trees still standing in this building, I feel fine. <laughs> and uh, so The Christmas Mind, uh, really it's not only a Christmas message, it will go beyond that uh, and become a New Year's message for your church as it was for ours as well. The Apostle Paul is writing in Philippians chapter 2, and in verse number 5 of chapter 2, just one verse that we will look at to start with and then move from there. The Apostle says to the church at Philippi, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, he doesn't define it in that one verse what the mind he is talking about, but he is simply saying that, Christians, I want you to have this. Have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Now, if you want to, you can turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. One of the things I think that becomes pretty apparent to us as believers in the special seasons, the holiday seasons, and in particular when we're emphasizing Christmas, is the idea that the Christian discerns things and thinks about things in ways that the non-Christian does not. For example, when the Christian thinks about the meaning of Christmas about why do we celebrate this time of year, his thoughts are lifted way above that of the non-Christian because we are able to discern things and think in ways that the non-Christian cannot. The non-Christian secularist wills to or can only or tends to think about the here and the now, about material things, or possibly about relationships, family relationships. The non-Christian, if religious, may go so far as to ponder all the trappings of their particular religious affiliation. An individual who is religious but still not a believer may become somewhat entranced in all the religious symbolism that's affiliated with their particular liturgy. He might even think more on the social illnesses of society or the promotion of the public's good or even, even the rigors of his own religious devotion, whether it be fastings and prayers. The religious non-Christian at this time of year may focus on things slightly different from the secularist but nevertheless still falls short of that of the Christian mind. For the true Christian, the one who is a true follower of Jesus Christ, the one who is a real disciple of the Lord, the true meaning of Christmas, and I think MacArthur has it right, right on the head here, 
can be condensed to four simple words. The true meaning of Christmas can be condensed to four simple words. It is the idea that is contained in the four words which lifts the Christian's thinking to heights beyond the non-Christian. The four words are found in John 1 and verse 14. The word became flesh. Now we know what that means. But John fleshes that out for us in this first chapter, and, and I just want us to run down it. Beginning in verse number one, John gives us really the identity of the word. Verse 14, the word became flesh, and now John gives us the identity. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So that the word he refers to in verse 14 pre-exists time. In the beginning, the word. He tells us also that the word has personhood that the Word was with God, that the Word, in fact, was God. In verse three, for 3, he tells us that the Word was Creator God. All things were made through Him. And then in verse 4, John goes on to say that the Word, as Creator God, gave life, eternal life, spiritual life. And then further in verse 4, he says that this life was the light of men. So run down, again, those four verses. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Verse 4, in him was life. In him was spiritual life, and that life was the light of men. That life confronts men with the truth of God and the holiness of God. So with these things in mind, then, about the Word, when John drops down to verse 14 and tells us what Christmas means, he says this, the Word becomes flesh. The Word that preexisted, that had personhood, who is creator God, who gives life and gives light, that Word is creator God, the source of eternal life. He is the one who took on flesh. Verse 14. God became man without giving up his divinity. That's the incarnation. That is the Christian mind about Christmas. And that raises our thoughts above the non-Christian. The very significant reality behind Christmas is that God came and we know that he came in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, that God came. And the rest of the Gospel of John manifests the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is that word. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
But the thought today, dealing with the Christmas mind, is not so much on the why of Christmas as it is on the how of Christmas. What was behind this? What was the mind behind the first Christmas? And by that, again, I'm not talking about what Jesus, why Jesus came. We could talk about why Jesus himself said he came. He said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of one who sent me. So that everything that Jesus Christ did was in complete unity with the Father. So that the very will of the Father was fleshed out in the actions, activities, attitudes, healings, and all of that by Christ. Including the fleshing out of the gospel itself. All of that in perfect unity with God. We could talk about the rule which governed his coming, when he said, think not that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, but to what? Fulfill them. Jesus not only taught more fully the law, when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, about adultery, that it goes much further than the act itself, right? Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart with her. So that he taught the law more fully. Jesus not only lived out the law more fully in that he was sinless and fulfilled the law in that respect, But brothers and sisters, Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the scriptures. When God said that he would be born of a virgin, it was Jesus Christ who was born of a virgin. When God said that the baby would be born in Bethlehem, it was Jesus Christ who was born in Bethlehem. When the psalmist writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was Jesus Christ who cried out that cry on the cross of Calvary. And when Jesus rose from the dead in fulfillment of Psalm 16, he was just showing that he himself, the being, Jesus, is the fulfillment of Scripture. He said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus goes on in several other sayings and tells us why he came, but that is not what we're talking about this morning. What we're asking this morning is about the how of Christmas. We want to know what the mind was behind it. That is, I'm asking, what was the attitude? What was the disposition of his coming? What is the Christmas mind What was the incarnate God's way of thinking behind his coming? That's what I'm calling the Christmas mind. And the answer is in the larger context of our single verse there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. So you can turn back over to Philippians 2. Whatever the 
Christmas mind is, I submit to you that we, all of us, in the church of Christ, in the body of Christ, are to have it. The English Standard says, have this mind among yourself. Have it. The Legacy Standard says it this way, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So I want us to look at the verse more closely and see what it says, and I want you to see three things that will promote or prove the Christmas mind in us individually and collectively as a church. And the first thing that promotes the Christmas mind is that Christians are to conform to it. That is, Christians are to deliberately have a certain way of thinking. Have this way of thinking in yourselves. We are to deliberately think a certain way as believers. Because how we think, as a man thinketh in his heart, what? So is he. Unlike the world around us without Christ whose minds and thoughts are shaped and molded by the myriad cultural philosophies, by the social constructs, by ideologies, and by perhaps religious voices, the Christian mind conforms to truth. There is truth. There is absolute truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. And then he says in John 17, sanctify them with Thy truth, thy word is truth. There is truth. In a postmodern world which doesn't believe in truth, there is truth. The Christian mind, the Christian mind conforms to it. It conforms to the word of God. It is shaped, it is molded, it is renewed by the sanctifying truth of God, by the word of God. And again, I praise God that the Word of God is elevated in song and prayer and and in the preaching of the Word of God and the reading of the Word of God in this church. God uses the Word of God to call forth faith so that people are saved, and God uses the Word of God to sanctify the saints of God. And so it must be elevated in the life of the church. The Christian thinks in ways that are absolutely radically different from the world. It must be that way, especially especially the contrast. If you're living in a world that says there's no truth and you think there is truth, that's radically different, isn't it? And we believe there's truth. So the Christian mind thinks in ways that are radically different from the world. And Paul is telling us in verse 5 to deliberately have a certain way of thinking. And the way of thinking that he has in mind is seen in verses 3 and 4. So in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is the mind the Christian is to have. Have this mind, Paul says in verse 5. And the reason why Paul is saying these things is because he wants the Philippian church to be a spiritual light, to be the spiritual light that the Spirit of God has made her. 
to maintain the unity that is produced by the Spirit of God. The atmosphere that the Spirit of God produces in the life of genuine believers collects them together. That atmosphere of love, that atmosphere of peace, that atmosphere of unity, Paul wants protected. And we see that emphasis in verse 2 of chapter 2, where Paul says, fulfill my joy that you think the same way, that, it, that is, that if you are of one mind about God, that you are of one mind about life, that you are of one mind about Christ's lordship, think the same way by maintaining the same love, and I appreciate the pastoral prayer this morning and the emphasis of loving one another equally regardless of backgrounds. Because you're in Christ, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, that is, knit together in harmony and thinking on one purpose, and the one purpose of the church is to magnify and glorify Christ in all the ways that he says to do that. Christian unity, then, is around the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian unity is based on God's holy truth. Christian unity is Christ's will, his purposes, his glory in view. Paul, in essence, is saying then, diligently maintain this unity. We read that in Ephesians 4 in verse 2. Maintain the unity that the Spirit of God has created in the body of Christ. Which necessarily means that there are things that have to be avoided. For example, it says in verse 3, avoid having selfish ambition or strife or a party spirit within the fellowship. A party spirit, you may recall from the Corinthian church where the church was really divided in a number of ways and they were saying among themselves, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos or I'm of Cephas or I'm of Christ. And, and there you had a body that had been brought to be one, all divided over a party spirit, a striving after one group versus another. So we're to avoid having selfish ambition or strife. We are to avoid seeking our own glory, which is really vain glory. Because these things disrupt and attack the spiritual unity that is produced by the Spirit of God among the converted. In other words, the atmosphere of unity, Paul says, protect that atmosphere. And one of the ways you're going to have to protect it is to deliberately think a certain way, and the way you have to think is in verses 3 and 4. Do not allow things to disrupt the unity that the Spirit of God has created. We read something about the beauty of that in the book of Acts in the early church, and, and I'll ask you to turn so that you can see it in action, in Acts chapter 2. The apostle Peter has preached. This was the day of Pentecost, you recall. He preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is working in unusual ways, obviously, because He has come. 
and now he is indwelling the believers, and now in the power of the Spirit of God, Peter is giving witness to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. And the multitude says, we have crucified the Messiah, what should we do? And Peter tells them to believe in Christ, to turn from sin, to put full trust in him. And 3,000 plus got saved. That's unusual. It's a mighty work of the Spirit of God for something like that to take place. What did the 3,000 do after they got saved? What did the Spirit of God lead the apostles who were leading now this group of 3,000 plus the 120 in the upper room and whoever else may have wandered into the midst? What were they to do with this number? And the Spirit-led direction was in verse 42. In verse 42, the Scripture tells us, and they, the 3,000 plus who believed and made that belief public through water baptism, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. They devoted themselves. They were committed to these things. This was the early church agenda. Here it is. It is simple. They clung to the apostles' teaching, the Word of God. They maintained the fellowship of the body and that unity. They practiced the ordinance, in this case, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, and they were committed to prayers. That's what they were devoting themselves to. Now look, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. So these 3,000 plus, they hung out with each other, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So when needs arose, they were willing to give up their material possessions for the benefit of those who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, fellowshipping with each other, they received their food and glad with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was a church that was thinking in the same way. It was in love with Jesus Christ it was in love with one another. It was united in heart and spirit. It was committed to one purpose, advancing Christ in every legitimate, spirit-empowered way. It was a compelling community. No division was present. People of all sorts 
were together, according to Acts 1, 9 and 10. You can look at their backgrounds. All sorts of people were together. They were united, and they were united around Jesus Christ. It was a new life for these 3,000 plus. They were new creatures in Christ. They were partakers of the divine nature. They had the indwelling Holy Spirit. They were truly converted. They were not the same people they were before coming to Christ. They were regenerate. Brothers and sisters, you realize how unique we are in this world by virtue of the grace of God and, and the seal of the Spirit of God within? We are not like the world. Christians at Philippi were true also. They were like this church. God had done a great work in them. He was perfecting them, according to Philippians 1.6, being confident, Paul writes, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the question becomes, why then does Paul need to admonish these believers if Christ is doing such a mighty work, a spirit is doing a mighty work in them, why does he have to admonish them to, to, to not do things that would destroy the unity that he's advocating in verse 2 for them to maintain and to have a certain way of thinking? Why does he need to admonish them to do those things? And the answer we know, we all know. Even though the Christian is a new man, even though the Christian has all the benefits of, of coming to salvation with the indwelling spirit, the intercessory work of the Savior, even though we have a new heart, a new nature, even though we have a new disposition, a new bent away from sin and towards God, there is something still profoundly wrong within. Right? You're not hesitating on me, are you? Yeah. Right, there you go. There's something profoundly wrong within. And Paul tells us what that is in Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am. He's talking about indwelling sin. Still residing. It's the reason why we have conflicts. It's the reason why we think some of the awful things that we think do some of the awful things that we do, say some of the awful things that we say, not do some of the good things we should do. Indwelling sin causes us to do things like seek our own glory. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to be recognized for their contribution, held back some of the portion of the land they sold and the Spirit of God killed them on the spot. Why? Because the church needs to be pure. Or it could become like Acts chapter 6 where Satan attacks the church's unity and stirs up the flesh to divide and the Hebrews and the Grecian widows were at odds because the Grecians were being neglected. You see, if Satan can move the church off of Christ's agenda and design for the church, he can weaken its effectiveness. He can dim the light of the church in the world. If he can turn the church away from the unity expressed in verse 2, 
He will have cause to gloat if he can move individuals in the corporate body to be engaged in strife and pursuing vainglory. He can boast. If he can move the church to tolerate sin and to tolerate false teaching, then he can kill the church. Revelation 3 and verse 1, Sardis had the reputation of being alive, but the risen Christ gives the right assessment and says, but you are dead. When these things happen to the life of the church, the world scoffs. And so therefore, our text tells us that the first thing the church and the individual Christian is to do is to deliberately have a certain way of thinking. And again, that certain way of thinking is, in verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on his own interest, but on the interest of others. And in a moment, we're going to see that that was the very mind of Christ And that's why I'm calling it, when he came, the Christmas mind. A second thing that we see in our text is the proving ground for the Christmas mind is the fellowship of believers. Again, the legacy standards puts it this way, have this way of thinking in yourselves. He's primarily not talking about the individual, though, though a corporate body is made up of individuals. And the individual has to have this way of thinking for the corporate body to have this way of thinking. But he's really referring, have this mind in yourselves corporately. The whole fellowship is to have this way of thinking, to maintain that unity. And we know that this will be challenged. We, we, we know it will be tested because of the residual of sin that we talked about. We know that this corporate unity will be challenged and tested and proved because of Satan's hatred for the Christian But even when the believer reads verses 3 and 4 and is committed to what what he finds there and says, yes, amen, keep this unity, regard others more important than yourself, and look not on your own interests but on the interests of others, he still finds, even when he's committed, he still finds it not easy to do. He will often find it very natural not to do it. And thus the admonition is needed so that he will endeavor to do it. And we must all learn, we must all learn in the Christian walk, all of us have to learn this, that the only way to live out the Christian life is in the empowering of the Spirit of God. It's not dependent, that is, we are not depending on our own strength and energies to to accomplish what only the Spirit of God in us can accomplish. That doesn't mean we're passive. We make make use of all the means of grace. But our ultimate trust is in the Spirit of God to enable us to do what we can't do. So, we're trying to maintain unity. Ephesians 4 verse 2 tells us how. We will, within the fellowship, need to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And as I said, it's just not easy. It isn't easy. Brothers and sisters, what you have 
in having a healthy church centered around Jesus Christ will be attacked. You are front and center for being attacked. Because the effectiveness of a church like this becomes a mighty instrument in the hands of the Spirit of God. And we know that there will be problems, right? There will be problems within. Let me, let me make it really clear to you. There will be problems because believers have personalities. And some of them aren't really cool. And they have idiosyncrasies. My wife says I have idiosyncrasies. You believe that? <laughs> and there'll be various other differences that absolutely makes Paul's admonition difficult to do. But given that, given that, what then motivates us to the very end that Paul is exhorting us? What motivates us to have this way of thinking? Paul gives us the ultimate motivation. And he regularly does this. He regularly rushes to Jesus Christ as the ultimate example of Christian ethics. And so he says, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ is the ultimate example of Christian ethics. And here is the, Christian, the Christmas mind personified Look at verse 6. Have this mind among yourself, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is verse 4 by way of a very vivid illustration, and let's run through it really fast. Talking about Jesus Christ in his coming, though equal with God and therefore God, God the Son, Jesus did not look upon his status or his position as something to be grasped or held tightly to. He did not view his divine standing as a reason not to condescend to meet the needs of even the sinful. But instead, he emptied himself not of his divinity, but he emptied himself of the prerogatives of the divine nature he took on flesh, John 1.14, and he took on, therefore, also the, the essence of servanthood. He didn't merely serve externally. He took on the essence of servanthood. And it goes even further. In his humiliation, he took on flesh in the form of a servant, being God, and became obedient to the Father's will all the way to death, but he didn't just die any death. He was obedient and submissive God, being obedient and submissive to the Father to death, even the death of the most degrading kind, the death of the cross. 
while on the cross, he was to the polite Roman an obscenity, and to the Jew who looked upon him, he was under the curse of God. In other words, Paul uses the ultimate illustration of Christ as to what he means by regard one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This, brothers and sisters, is to be the corporate mindset. It is the Christmas mind of the church. It is the Christmas mind that Paul wants for Carrollton Baptist for Christ Fellowship in Williamsburg. The Christmas mind is a humbled mind. It regards one another more significant than self. The Christmas mind is an obedient mind that Christ's will is what matters. The will of Christ is all that matters. The Christmas mind is a loving, self-sacrificial mind. Christ died even the death of the cross so that the undeserving sinner might be might have eternal life, and by the way, that would have been all of us who know Christ now. Christ died for us while we were undeserving sinners. Do you know what kind of church lives this way? Do you know what kind does? The answer is, the church whose first allegiance is Jesus Christ. It is the church that has already collectively bowed the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Collectively. The church is moving like a flock of birds together, collectively kneeling before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the church that fulfills what Paul is talking about here. And notice that in our text, because in verse 9, in the context, after Jesus humbled himself to the death of the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him at the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Everyone, everyone, everyone will do that. But the church that does it now will, will revel in the unity that the Spirit of God has produced. It will be a church that finds its joy in having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And do you know what happens when the church does that? Do you know what happens when the individual does that? Peter tells us what happens when he says this, not my son, the apostle. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you. As Christ was exalted, so a church that is humble and has collectively bent the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, so in God's time can be exalted. Do you know Jesus Christ? And by that I'm simply asking this. Have you recognized your need for a Savior? Because without Him you're hopelessly doomed to an eternal, to an eternal punishing hell. And as a result of knowing that, have you turned from that sin and put full trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. For there is no other way. Under heaven whereby a man must be saved. Let's pray.